Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. As you turn there, just want to echo what was said earlier. I uh, want to encourage you to consider coming back this evening for our, our uh, Sunday evening service, our monthly Sunday evening service. We're going to be able to, to, to talk about our short, short-term mission team. So we'll be giving a report. You know, it's been uh, several years since we were able to send teams. And so uh, we'll, we'll hearing from them and hearing about how God has been working in uh, those trips and, and just kind of give some updates on the missionaries that, that they have spent some time with. And then uh, Dave Robinson will be also talking about why we do, we do missions. And so I think it's going to be a really encouraging time. And we'll also be doing a, a family meeting this evening where we uh, do some membership things. And just always uh, such a sweet time uh, to, to continue in the Lord's Day of, of worshiping together as a church. So I encourage you to do that. And then also this morning we are participating in the Lord's Supper together as a body. And so in just a moment when we stand to read God's Word together, if you haven't had the opportunity to grab the elements, you may do so at, at, the, at the back, at the, at the tables there. We're in Acts 26. And remember last week we talked about Paul appearing before Agrippa and Bernice, and, and Festus is not quite sure what to do with Paul, and so Paul is going to be giving his testimony, his defense here in Acts 26, and we're going to read the first 18 verses together this morning as Paul begins to give this defense. And so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 1 of Acts 26, reading from the English Standard Version. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a language saying, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose 
to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we recognize our inability to, to know you apart from your divine work, and we, we pray that, that by your grace you would help us to testify to what you've done within us to others. Help us to be bold and be compassionate as we do so. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. The book of Acts, as you remember, is a book about testifying. It's about witnessing, that the church is to be a witness. Uh, we saw as, as we began the book of Acts in Acts 1.8 that, uh, that Jesus says that you're, you're to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. That's, that's what the church does. The church witnesses. It, it testifies to the power of God's work with, within the lives of its members. That's what the church is doing. Now, here in Acts 26, remember last week, we kind of laid the foundation for what's going to happen in this chapter. Festus, the, the governor, has this problem. This prisoner, Paul, left over by Felix, has appealed to Caesar. He wants to have his case tried by Caesar. But Festus's problem is he's not really sure what Paul has done wrong. In fact, as he's examined him, he says, look, there, there's nothing that the Jews are accusing him of that's, that's worthy of death. And, and so not only would, would I not condemn him, I, I don't even know what to write down to, to, to Caesar as I, I send Paul to Caesar to have his case tried. And so that's, what, that's kind of setting up the scenario. And as Paul gets ready to give his defense, remember we, we said this last week, one of the benefits that Paul has as he gives this testimony is that he's lived a blameless life. He, he's lived a life that as he, as he speaks, his, his actions are, are, are in, in sync with what his words are going to be. He's lived a righteous life. And we, we talked about last week, it's, it's beneficial if we're going to be those who would share the gospel, it's, it's beneficial that our lives are lived in a, in a way that, that brings honor to God. However, it's not good enough to just do good things. We haven't sufficiently fulfilled our task as, as witnesses if we just live a nice life. People shouldn't just be able to look at us and say, okay, well, that person's lived a good life, therefore I, I understand the gospel. That's, that's not how this works. There's more to our witness than just living a good life. Being a good witness requires words. We have to, to say things. Remember, I, I don't know if you remember this, I had forgotten when, when I had done this. I had spent about half an hour trying to find this on my, when I, when I had done this on my uh, computer this last week. But remember, uh, it, was, it was Easter of 2021. We, we talked about the content of the gospel message. And we talked about how as we share the gospel message, there are, there are four kinds of questions that we're, we're answering. We're answering the question, who made me? Uh, to, to, whom I am, to whom am I accountable? That's one question that we're answering. We're answering the question, what's wrong with the world? 
Why aren't things the way that they should be? Why am I not happy all the time? What's, what's wrong with this world? We're also answering the question, what has God done about what's wrong in the world? And then finally, we're answering the question, what do I do in response? So who made me? To whom am I accountable? What's wrong with the world? What has God done to fix what's wrong? And then what do I do in response? Those are some of the questions that we're answering as we share the gospel. And we, we talked about there's four words that we can remember. God, he's the one who made us. Man, what's wrong with the world? We are. What has God done in response to what's wrong in the world and our sin? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. So God, man, Christ. And then the fourth word, response. What do I do as a response to what God has done. Those are some of the, the, the key truths that we're trying to communicate as we communicate the gospel. Now, how do we do that? We, we can just walk up to, to someone and say, God, man, Christ, response, but it won't necessarily make sense to them, right? But we need sometimes some, some help, some, some context in helping people understand what the gospel message is. And one of the means that God has given us to share those core truths of the gospel are testimonies. Testimonies are a God-given means to share the good news of the gospel. They're effective, and God has called us to employ them. We're to testify to God's power in the gospel. We, we talk about God's work in our lives. A testimony can be engaging. It, it's interesting. God calls us to give testimonies. We, we do throw through it at, at various times in our lives. And when we're baptized, we give our testimony. When we meet someone, we can give our, our testimony. When we're having conversations with family members, we can give our, our testimonies. Here's, here's kind of the main truth that I want us to think about this week and next as we see Paul giving his testimony. It's a little bit long, it's a, but it's a two-week thing, so it's okay for it to be a little bit longer. Uh, so if you write it down now, you have it for next week too. But here's, here's what a testimony does. A testimony shares the story of how God transformed me and saved me by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and calls those who hear it to, re, to also repent and believe the gospel. So, so that's what a testimony is. So it's, it's me sharing the story of, of how God has transformed me and, and then saved me by his grace, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And the, the testimony, as, as I share that story, it's not just me kind of telling a story about what happened. There's also in that testimony a, an explicit or implicit call for them to respond as well. Okay, here's what you need to do. You also need to repent and believe the gospel. That's what a testimony is to do. And so in, in this text, Paul is giving a, a clear testimony that serves as a model for us. We, we see how he gives this testimony to Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and all those who are there. And it's, it's a model for us as to how we should give our testimony. What we, when we're being baptized or when we're in a conversation with, with a coworker and they're asking us about our lives and we have the opportunity to speak into what's going on in their life and tell them our story or we're, we're talking to someone who's in crisis, we say, okay, let me, let me tell you about, about my testimony. Let me tell you about the power of God at work within me. And then as I share that, let me encourage you to repent and believe the gospel as well. Over the next two weeks, there's, there's four things, Lord willing, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about. Four things for truths that are topics that a, a testimony addresses. 
It talks about who I was, and then it talks about what God did, and then who I am now, and then what you must do. So those, those four things, who I was, then what God did, who I am now, and then what you must do. That's what a testimony is, is sharing. So let's, let's dive in here to the text. There's, I'm going to try to get through 18 verses here this morning. And let's, let's first of all talk about this, uh, who I was. That's what Paul begins his testimony with. This is who I was. All right, look at verses 1 through 11. And Paul is appearing, remember, he's appearing before Agrippa. And Agrippa and, and Bernice, in the previous chapter, verse 23, they come into this audience hall. There's great pomp that accompanies them, and there are military tribunes that are there as well, and the, the chief officials of the city have gathered in there. And so there's this audience hall. Agrippa takes a position of, of leadership here, presumably because he's the one that Festus is asked to kind of listen to Paul more carefully so he can know what to write to the emperor. And Festus uh, turns it over to Agrippa, and Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. You can give your testimony. You can help us understand why you are the way that you are, what, who you are. And so Paul begins to speak, and in verses 2 through 3, he kind of begins with the pleasantries. He says, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to present this defense to you, King Agrippa. I'm excited about this because you have a, a knowledge of the Jews. You know about their customs and controversies. And I, I'm, I'm asking you to listen patiently. Paul knows that Agrippa does not have the authority to, to free him. That's, that's not what he's getting at here. I think he's excited based upon what happens throughout the rest of the chapter. I think he's excited about presenting this gospel testimony to Agrippa because he knows that Agrippa has enough knowledge to understand the truths of the gospel. He's excited about the opportunity to present the gospel to him. And then he talks about, verses 4 through 8, look at the text there, he talks about who he used to be. Verses 4 and 5 say this. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Luke is not covering any new grounds here in what he's writing about what Paul is saying. We know. We've seen this over and over again in Paul's defense. He used to be a Pharisee. He isn't just a Jew, but he's a very, he lived as a very strict Jew. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was just, he was, he was, uh, he's communicating things we've already known. So why does Luke tell us this again? I think what Paul is trying to show, and what Luke wants to make sure that we understand, is as he talks about who he used to be, who I was, what he's trying to say is, I, I was exactly like the people who are now accusing me, o only more so, right? They're Jews, so was I. I wasn't just a, a casual Jew, Agrippa. Uh, I, I was the strictest of Jews. I, I followed every Jewish rule you could follow. I was zealous as a follower. And now, he says this, verse 6. He says, And now, even though that's who I was, I, I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to 
our fathers. So Paul does what he's done every time he's given a defense. He, he keeps Christ at the center. Keep your finger there in, in Acts chapter 26. Remember how many times he's talked about this hope. This, this hope refers to the hope of the resurrection and the accompanying ministry of the, the Messiah. You go back to chapter 23, and remember it's in verse 6 that this first comes up. He's appearing before, remember he's, he's been rescued by Lysias out of the hands of the mob there in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, he perceives that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees. He cries out in the council, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's re- with respect to what? The hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. He keeps that at the, the center of his defense. And we go into to chapter 24, and he's appearing before Felix. And in chapter 24, verse 14, he says, this is, you know, what they've accused me of being guilty of, I'm not guilty of. Here's my offense, verse 14. Here's my confession, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers and uh, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's the, the essence of my offense. I, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the Messiah. I, I believe in the hope that God has called us to, to have hope in, that the promise that he has made. Remember, we talked about Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, says there, there will be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So that's, that's, the, that's the promise. We'll talk more about this here in just a second. There's going to be a time of trouble, Daniel says, and then there's going to be deliverance. And at the time of deliverance, there's going to be this time of, of resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so, so Paul is saying, that's what I had hope in. That, that's, what I was, that's what I was hoping in, this, this, this promise that God has made of resurrection. Isaiah chapter 25 talks about the Messiah. It says that, that he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Paul says, that was my hope. I hoped in the power of the resurrection. I hoped in the coming of the Messiah who would swallow up death forever. That was my hope. That was the hope, that is the hope of these Jews who are accusing me. This is who I was. Now, there was a problem, right? Look at verse 7. It says, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O king. So there's, a, there's an irony here. We'll talk about it here in just a second. But as, they, as he talks about the Jews, he says, you know, they are also are still earnestly longing for this as I was myself. And then verse 8, this question that draws in the audience, he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles here. Why would any of you doubt that God can raise the dead? Now here's, here's the irony. 
again, he's talking about who I was, and what, what he's showing us is I was, I was just like the Jews that are accusing me. And the irony of, of Paul's life before Christ is the, the same irony that is true of every life without Christ. His acts of worship were actually acts of rebellion. And and the more that he thought that he was worshiping God, and the more that he was doing in order to to try to to worship God, and just like all the Jews, he was actually acting in complete and total rebellion against God. Look at what it says here in verses 9 through 11. Here's a central irony. He says, I was convinced, I, I, I was, was certain, because of this hope that I, that I had in, in, in the promise, I, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I, I did so in Jerusalem. I, I locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. And, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was in complete agreement with bringing these people's lives to an end. I punished them synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme the name of Christ. I persecuted them even to, to foreign cities. Who was Paul? He, he was exactly like the people who are accusing him now. He was without knowledge that Jesus was the hope that he was longing for. Who was he? He was a person whose life was, was spent in, in futility because he was living in, in opposition to God. The things he thought were acts of worship were acts of rebellion. He knew a lot of truths about God, about the hope of the resurrection, but, but none, of these, none of these things that he knew fit together correctly because he denied that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, this, this past week, uh, Ellie and I were, were talking about uh, one of her math assignments, and, and uh, Whitney had asked me to, to kind of take a few minutes, and, and, and we're talking about it, which is, of course, ironic, because Whitney was the math major. And I, I sat down, and I, I saw this problem, and I said, okay, well, that's a, that's a um, division sign. That means you're going to divide something. Um, that's an X. That's not really math at all, right? It's a letter. Um, I remember that that means to divide something, and uh, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to factor at some point, but I don't know when. And so I was just kind of I was giving her a lot of math facts, and, and Ellie's like, where's mom? Uh, <laughs> I said, that's a great question. And I said, hey, Whitney, can you just, just remind me of a couple? And Whitney said, no, 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 here's Here's your goal. Here's what you're trying to do. Okay, I remember. Okay, now I remember. Now all these various math things I knew suddenly made sense in this problem, right? But but apart t- before Whitney said that, I just had a bunch of jumbled facts that I remembered from from 20 plus years ago, right? Apart from understanding who Christ is, all these 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 facts about God don't make sense. They're they're, they're futile, and 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 what the Jews don't grasp, and Paul wasn't able to grasp, is that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the the hope for which they were waiting. In in Luke, 
chapter 2, remember what Luke would have told us in the Gospel of Luke about the arrival of Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, notice the triune God at work here. It said it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord. I think that's God the Father's Christ, the Messiah. And he came, Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. And when he, his parents had brought in the, the, the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Apart from understanding who Jesus Christ is, the hope of the prophets doesn't make any sense. What I want you to see as we think about this first part of Paul's testimony is this. We need, as we share who we are in Christ, we need to share at some point who we were, who, who I was. And what this part of your testimony should show is that at, at some point in time we were alienated from God because we did not understand that Jesus is the Christ. You see, this part of our testimony isn't just talking about how we used to be immoral. It, it's, it's not just talking about how we used to be a, a bad person. What it's showing is that, that even as we were doing good things, what we thought were good things, they, they weren't good things. They were futile because we didn't understand that Jesus is the Messiah. It's showing our, our lack of understanding that, that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, here's, here's kind of three things I want you to think about about your, this part of your testimony. As you share your testimony with other people who, who used to be one, as you share this part of your testimony, it should show the pervasiveness of sin apart from Christ, how, how sin permeates, it, it fills all areas of our life. Now, we want to be careful here, right? Uh, sometimes, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard this as, as well, sometimes a person's sharing their, their testimony, they're talking about who they were, and, and maybe, um, maybe they go into a little too much detail, right, about some of the, their, their past. And there's some context where you just want to be really careful about sharing who you used to be. Like, you don't need to share every swear word you used to say and in what context you said that in, right? You don't need to share all that and every day. It's sufficient to say, look, this is, this is how sin affected every aspect of my life. Another thing that we want to do in this part of our testimony is we want to show the, the futility of our, our thinking apart from Christ. Like, uh, my, my, my life was futile apart from Christ. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4? He says in Ephesians 4, 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So notice the progression. You don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, why are their, their minds futile? Why are they doing these things? Because their understanding is darkened. Now, why is their understanding darkened? Because they're alienated from the life of God. They're, they have hard hearts. He says, but this is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming you've heard about him and 
or taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So what we want to do in this part of our testimony is we're sharing the gospel. We're going to say, look, this is who I was. And here's how sin was pervasive in my life. And here's how my, my thinking was, was futile apart from God divinely intervening and, and me understanding and, and believing his special revelation. People should see their need for God's special revelation. And we are those who now, at this point of our lives, we'll talk about this more later, have, have believed and received God's, God's special revelation. And apart from that, uh, lives are going to be very futile. There was an article uh, published, this, I think it was this past week, and it was published by a, a guy, I'm going to mispronounce his name because that's how I roll, um, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he's a, bib- a progressive biblical scholar, and the, the article kind of made its rounds in the places where these types of articles usually make their rounds, kind of people who don't really want to um, say they believe in the authority of Scripture but not really believe in the authority of Scripture. Listen to the argument that he made. Here's kind of the, the progression of, of argument that he made. He said, uh, first of all, he says, there, you can't deny that there are biblical texts that, that condemn homosexuality and, and other sexual sins that, that people who are part of the LGBTQ community, we would say, engages. He says, you can't deny that. He said, um, he said it's, uh, it's impossible to explain away these texts. And then he does so, right? He says, it's, number one, it's impossible to explain away these texts. And then number two, he says, however, there are also texts that talk about welcoming the outcast, right? Welcoming those who are at the, the fringes of, of culture or society or, or those who are uh, disenfranchised. And, and we need to welcome those people. And, he, and he's exactly right. That, of course, that's, those are true things, right? But then he takes two true statements, and then he adds this idea. Number three, his conclusion is we have to put the texts that say that they're against sexual sin like homosexuality against the text about welcoming people. And therefore, as we compare these texts, we need to welcome those who are part of the LGBTQ plus community apart from repentance. Now, there are many places where his arguments uh, fall short, but here's, here's what I think is most significant. As he talks about what the message of the gospel is, he, he minimizes it, right? The, the gospel message is absolutely a message of, of welcome. Whosoever will may come. And yet it's not just about welcoming, right? The gospel contains not just our own thoughts about God, our own thoughts about ourselves. The gospel contains special divine revelation from God that helps us understand what the world is and who we are. And apart from that divine revelation from God, we see we're not going to have hope of rightly recognizing who God is. And we see as we, we see this special revelation that it's not just about welcoming sinners, but transforming us as sinners from sinners to saints. The special revelation from God is, look, you are separated from God and you are in danger of his wrath. Turn. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Later in this, this passage, verse 20, Paul will, Paul will talking about his gospel message, will say, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Romans chapter 1, he'll, he'll talk about 
those who give hearty approval to sin and, 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 the, and the deadliness of that. And so the question I would ask Dr. Brueggemann, one, how do you pronounce your name? But two, I would say, you know, look, if the gospel is just a message about welcoming and inclusion, of what do people need to repent? Now, he would probably, based on that article, he said, well, people need to repent of, of uh, sins of, of um, abusing power, and they would need to, to repent of, of uh, abusing authority and, and things like that. And, and I'd say, okay, in this conversation, I'd say, uh, well, fine, I agree with that. Now, what about sexual sin? What sexual sin do, do people need to repent of? To which he would just respond, wow, you are so smart. Uh, you should be the world-renowned scholar. No, I'm sure he'd have a very good answer to that, right? I'm sure he would, he would think through that. But here's, here's, what I would, here's what I would say. I think he's untethered himself from the authority of, of Scripture. He's taken some, some, some true thoughts and, and, and then twisted them to, to, to go away from what, what Scripture tells about who we are and, and the, the nature of the gospel. Who was I? I was a person who was in rebellion to God. And my life did not make sense in that rebellion. It caused me to live a, a futile life. And so as we're, as we're communicating this part of our testimony, we need to show the pervasiveness of sin. We need to show the futility of our thinking. And the third thing that I would encourage you to, to share in this part of your testimony is the hopelessness of our situation apart from Christ. I was an enemy of God. I was moving away from him. I wasn't moving closer to him. Paul says, look, even as I was pursuing God, I was actually doing things in opposition of God. You know, the worst advice you can give an unregenerate person, if you're a parent, parenting an unregenerate child, the worst thing you can tell them is follow your heart, right? Your heart is like a, a car traveling 100 miles toward a toward a brick wall, all the while screaming, freedom! I mean, it's just not a good thing to follow, right? Instead, we need to pray, to plead with God, God, save me from my heart. So, who was I? Uh, Paul is saying, I was, I was a person who was living a, a life in opposition to God. I was just like the people who are now accusing me. All of our testimonies should, should communicate that. Number two, though, who or what did God do? What God did, that's the second part that we communicate. And by the way, speaking about the last point, even a young person can communicate these truths, right? Maybe you say, well, Daniel, I don't have like this 20-year period of rebellion. All of us can communicate the, the hopelessness of our lives apart from Christ. I, I don't remember all my sin, but my, my parents would tell me I was a willful child, things like that, and I, I, I know that I needed Christ. I came to some point in time where I recognized that who I was was a sinner in opposition to God. So what did God do? What God, what God did? Here's, here's what Paul tells us. And some of these things we've, we've encountered before in the book of Acts, a couple of the things that Paul says here are, are new items of information. And he leaves out some things. He doesn't mention Ananias to this audience because this audience probably won't care about this, this pious Jew, Ananias, uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 9. But here's what, what Paul communicates. Verse 12. He says, I was, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. So again, I was, I was riding in step with those people who are now accusing me. And it was midday, O king, and I, I saw on the way a light from heaven. 
And so he's, he's talking here about this in the very act of opposing God on the very side of those who are now condemning him, something changed. And what changed? Well, God divinely intervened. There was a supernatural intervention. Uh, he prevents Paul literally from continuing down the, the path of rebellion. Verses 13 through 15, there's this bright light in verse 13. Everyone falls down to the ground, verse 14. There's a voice speaking the Hebrew dialect. That's probably Aramaic there in uh, verse 14 is what Paul is referring to. I think the significance of highlighting that the voice was speaking to him in Aramaic is that this isn't some new strange deity. This is the, the deity of, of, of God. This is the, the God of his fathers. This is the, the true God, the only God. And Jesus, Paul says, asks, why are you persecuting me? This, we've encountered this before, but he gives this parable that we haven't heard before in the book of Acts. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, this is the only time in the book of Acts that he mentions these words that Jesus speaks. A goad was like a sharp stick that would be used for directing livestock, and the parable means to, to oppose the, the will of God. Why are you fighting against the will of God is what Jesus is asking. And then he gives this supernatural commissioning to Paul. He puts Paul on the path of glorifying God. Look at verse Look at verse 16. He says, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I have appointed you as a servant and witness. I think that's kind of one appointment there. Uh, to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And so uh, the, the times that I've just now appeared to you, and, the, and there's going to be future appearances in the past. And Paul would describe this in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians. He says, I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about a man, and he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And presumably also heard things there that are some of the things he's been communicating in his epistles. And so there, God tells Paul, I'm giving you this purpose. This purpose is to be my, my witness of things that you have seen about me and things that I'm going to show you in the future. And that's what Paul has been faithful to do. His task is described with kind of three infinitives, to open, to turn, to receive there in the text. He's to, to open eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and to re receive forgiveness of sins and a, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. We'll, we'll talk more about this uh, next week, but basically he's being sent to the people that he's been delivered from, his, his, both his people and the Gentiles. And so notice there, verse 18, before, before we move on, he's, he's alluding to the gospel. He's going to continue to talk about more, that this gospel message takes people and allows them to receive forgiveness of sins and allows them to have a place with the people of God. Who was I? I was in opposition to God, and I was a rebel. What does God do? He divinely intervenes and gives forgiveness of sins and a place in his family. What is a testimony and what is a testimony not? 
a testimony is about the work of Christ and, and what God has done through Christ. It, it's grounded in what God has revealed about himself, not just our own opinions about life and what we feel that the purpose of life should be. Uh, there's a, a book called The, the Creedal Imperative. It's by Carl Truman. And, and in the book, uh, Carl Truman makes a, a really interesting point. L- listen to what he says. He's talking about how liberal Christianity is kind of jettisoned doctrine. He said, you know, liberal Christianity took doctrine and, and just kind of uh, explained it away. So, for example, like predestination, liberal Christianity caused it to cease what it appeared to be on, on paper. It was a scripture. It's a statement about God's eternal purpose relative to men and women. And as, they, as liberal theologians got a hold of it, it became just kind of this poetic expression about the feeling of total dependence upon God. So that's, that's theological liberalism. And all the good theological conservatives in the room said, theological liberalism, bad, 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 right? And Carl Truman would agree. But listen to this. This is, this is something very interesting. He says, uh, theological liberalism took propositional doctrinal Christianity and we exchanged that you know, doctrine for something mystical. But he says, we as theological conservatives shouldn't get too proud of ourselves. Here's what he says. He says, mysticism is alive and well within evangelical circles. Anyone who has ever been told by a friend that the Lord led the friend to do something completely silly, or anyone who has ever began, been in a Bible study where the burden has been to explain, quote, what the text means to me, regardless of what the words on the page actually are, and the grammar and what the syntax indicate, has experienced an evangelical mysticism, listen to this, an evangelical mysticism that is really not distinguishable from traditional liberalism at the level of the understanding of what truly constitutes truth. He says, when individuals declare in my heart, well, I just, in my heart, I know what this is, I know that this is true. Or when they're, what they're often saying is, this belief works for me. I, it has some actual practical result that I like. Whether the belief makes them more cheerful or helps them be more important or feel more important or gives them hope for better times ahead, the important thing is not so much about the content of the belief as, as its result. How can I make them feel? That's theological mysticism, right? Now, this is what we mean when we talk about a testimony. We mean that we are testifying to what God has done. We have confidence that this, this is what God has done based upon what he says in his word. We say, okay, this is what God has said in his word, and now let me, let me tell you what, what God said in his word and what he's done, and now let me describe how that has affected me in, in my life. And of course, we're talking about what's taken place in our, our own life and how it's transformed our heart and, and the response that we have, but it's never divorced from what God has divinely revealed to us through his special revelation. This te- my, the, my testimony is not just, hey, here are three thoughts about how you can have a better life, or here's some, some, some uh, feel-good things that God has done. We're talking about, look, this is what God has done in his word by, by, by his power, by the power of the Spirit. In fact, here's what I want to do in the remainder of the time that we have together this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion. I want to talk about the work of the triune God. We're saying here's what God has done. And as we we share our testimonies, we want to say, okay, here's what God has done, and here's how he's transformed my life. Let me just 
share a couple of things. And, and um, let's talk about how the triune God has been involved in our salvation. Here's what God did. Number one, there was revelation of the Father. The Father must reveal the Son to us. Colossians chapter 1, he's delivered us from the domain of the darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In Isaiah 42, verse 5, thus says God, the the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then this is verse 16 of Isaiah 42. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things I do, and I do not forsake them. For us to be saved, God had to act. The Father, God the Father, had to reveal his truth to us. And so as we talk about our salvation, we're talking about the revelation of the Father. We're also, think about the, the, the work of the triune God, we're also talking about the redemption of the Son, the work that the, the Son has done. The, the Son must intervene to provide our redemption. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writes this, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? Verse 14 of Titus 2 who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As I'm sharing the gospel with people, as I'm talking about the, the, my testimony, I'm saying this is who I was. Now here's what God did. God the Father revealed to me the, the, the gospel message in his word. God the Son, Jesus Christ, gave himself for me to redeem me from my my lawlessness, to purify for himself a, a people. This is what God the Son has done. He lived a perfect life, a life of perfect righteousness, died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin to redeem me. And now I receive his righteousness as he takes on my sin. I the, the work of the Father, is, the work of the, of the triune God is a revelation of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and regeneration by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that provides life so that our heart can respond in faith. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born the Spirit. As we're sharing that the gospel, we're saying, look, this is who I was, but in a way that I don't fully understand, God, for whatever reason he had, because of his great mercy, the, the Spirit moved in my life, and, and by God's great mercy and grace, I could behold the beauty of the redemption of the Son revealed by the Father. The Spirit worked within me, and I, I believed it. I, I believed the gospel message. We'll talk more about that next week. But as we're talking about 
our testimonies for saying, this is who I was, but then not me, but God did something. He revealed himself. He worked, my, he worked to bring about redemption, and he brought new life within me. Michael Reeves uh, talks about this in his book, Gospel People, and, and this is what he writes. And Think about what he writes here. He says, evangelicals are people who are born of the Spirit. The new birth is a divine work of the Spirit, giving a new spiritual life and affecting a radical change of heart. What is important is not the conversion experience as such. Not all evangelicals, not all of us can point to this specific moment like, like a, a Luther or a Wesley, to the specific moment when God gave them new life. What is important is the fact that God has given them new life, that, that new life shows itself in how they heartily repent of their sin and heartily worship God. That, as it happens, is another reason why it is more helpful sometimes to see regeneration rather than conversionism as the, the essential aspect of our testimony. Some, I'm paraphrasing here. A focus on conversions could lead to manipulative culture that mainly works to, to, to talk about dramatic personal experiences. But what we want to see is we want to talk about the Spirit's regeneration as the vital matter. And true regeneration cannot be engineered by us. It is a divine work brought only about through the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The key truth in our testimony at this point is sharing what God has done in saving us. And, and so we want, to view, we want to avoid a culture of manipulation, trying to, to emotionally manipulate people to kind of respond to some sort of exciting song or some sort of, uh, you know, just, just, um, just merely an emotional moment. Instead, we say, look, we want you to experience the new life that only the Spirit can bring. We want to see regeneration. That's the goal of sharing our testimony. We share, here's who I was, here's what God has done, providing salvation for me, divinely intervening. And as we'll talk about next week, we want to also communicate now, who, here's who I am now, and here's how you must respond to this message as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask in your kindness to provide us opportunities to share the gospel. We pray that we would, would take this, this story of, of how you've transformed us and saved us by grace through your faith in your son Jesus. And we, we pray that we take that story and help others to hear it, to also repent and believe the gospel. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.